Welcome to the Live Big Podcast featuring Dr. Derek Greer, where we teach principles from God's Word that will empower you to live big. For more information, visit DerekGreer.com. Here's Dr. Greer. We're going to begin in John chapter 14 and verse 29. I'm going to pray for you, and we're going to get started. Father, open ears and open eyes. Cause us to see what we've never seen before because of the time we spent this Sunday in your word at this place at this time. We give you the honor for what you accomplished even before it's done. In Jesus' name we pray. And we say amen. John 14 and verse 29. Jesus is speaking. You have heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. Jesus predicted his death and resurrection over and over and over and over again throughout the Gospels and before it happened. He went on to say, if you love me, you would rejoice because I said I'm going to the Father. We must not ever become saddened by the death of the righteous. We may grieve because we miss them and we love them and, and maybe our lives now have to change, but ultimately we're glad because we know they have stepped into the eternal presence of God where there's no pain, no suffering, and, and there's a delight and a joy when a righteous person goes to be with the Lord. He goes on to say, for my Father is greater than I. Jesus' submission to the Father doesn't uh, imply any type of inferiority to the Father. You know, President Obama has more authority than anyone in this room, except maybe my wife in the house, but, but I mean, he, he has, you know, more authority than, than any of us, but it doesn't mean he's more of a human being. So, you know, the Godhead operates in perfect unity, but also in perfect rank and order. So Jesus submitted wholly to the Father, but it didn't make him less God. And now I have told you before it comes, Jesus was not surprised by his cross, and neither should you be about yours. Well, I told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, my favorite statement in all Scripture, you may believe. So when it happens, I want it to build your faith. We see here that one of the primary purposes of biblical prophecy is to build our faith. But also, or secondly, we see here that when prophecy comes to pass, it, 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 it pr- proves divine authority when it's fulfilled. It, it becomes the signature of God because only God can fulfill uh, a prophecy. You know, according to Scripture, any religion, anybody really speaking for God without ample fulfilled prophecy is uh, quickly dismissed, and you should quickly dismiss. And when you compare this, you know, there's... there's, there's There's no God like our God, but there's also no book like our Bible. And our Bible is unique that in its pages are not just declarations of of moral truths, but we see a predictive element that you do not see in other faiths on the level that we have in our Bible. We see that before Christ came, every, I mean, not every detail, but most details of his life were, were predicted and with incredible accuracy. And, and, and listen to what, what God says in Isaiah 46 and, and verse 9. This is God's mindset about prophecy and the such. He said, remember the former things of old, 
Remember the things that uh, I have done, and, and, and they were things that only a God could accomplish. For I am God, not a wannabe, not trying to be. I am God, and there is no other. Now, we may come up with arguments. You may hear arguments against the existence of God and all that, but let me tell you something. If the whole world decided there wasn't a God, that would not change one thing about God. Wouldn't diminish his power even an inch. You hear what I'm saying? He does not exist because of our approval. He doesn't exist because he's a figment of our imagination. He exists because he is. He is the first cause that got start, started, and without him, nothing would be that is. Does that make sense? You know, we could come up with the greatest arguments, man. We can get a team of us together. Let's come up with great arguments against gravity. Man, we could, we could convince, you know, the whole town and nation. You know, there, there's no such thing as gravity. Gravity is evil. Gravity is a myth. It, it's not real. But let me tell you, step off a cliff and you will be reminded of the truth instantly. Gravity is real. So you can admit it now or you can admit it later, but all of us are going to give an account to our Creator because we were all created by somebody. And at some point, we're going to answer to the one who made us. He said, I am God, and there is none, not a one, like me. Obviously, God does not have a self-esteem problem. So neither should those of us who follow Him. Our God is one of a kind, but so are you. You're one of a kind. So you need to act like it and live like it and, and know it. Verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning. God's chief credential, according to Isaiah, is the fact that he knows the future, that he knows the end from the beginning. So if Jesus is truly the Son of God, he should be expected to do the same. Let's look at just one example, though there, there, there are, are, are dozens throughout Scripture. Mark 13 and 2. Jesus said this before it happened. And Jesus answered and said to him, the disciples, do you see these great buildings that they were marveling about? And, and he was standing before the massive temple of Herod the Great, I mean, which was one of the, the ancient wonders of, of, of the world. And he looked at the temple, again, the, just the door of the temple was 200 feet tall. This was a huge temple. It was, it was magnificent. He looked at it, and he said, not one stone shall be left upon another. Jesus might, have well, might as well have walked up to one of the great pyramids of Egypt and, and predicted that it would tip over one day. This was amazing, his statement in the time that he said it. Who could imagine that such a massive temple could or would ever be destroyed? He said, not one stone, sh not one stone shall be left that shall not be thrown down. Forty years later, in 70 A.D., General Titus, the, 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 the Roman leader, burned down Jerusalem. And what happened was the fire burned so hot that the gold in the temple, and as we learned last week, there, were, there was literally tons of gold in the, 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 the temple. The gold and silver of the temple uh, began to melt and, 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 and kind of leak out between the cracks, between the stones uh, that, that, that made up the temple. So what the soldiers did, and, and actually the archaeological records of this, they, they began to dismantle the temple stone by stone to extract the gold. 
And just as Jesus said, the stones were knocked down. Isaiah 46 and 10. Declaring, speaking of God, what makes God, he said, there's no God like me. This is what I do. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet. You see, Jesus did not just show up in history. As we reflect on Passion Week or, or, or Holy Week, we need to understand that Jesus, uh, he, he, he showed up when predicted and he did exactly as predicted. He was not just some guy that kind of fit in with some things that were said about the Messiah. Every uh, major detail of his ministry was spoken hundreds and hundreds of years even before uh, he was uh, living on earth. Isaiah 50 and verse 6, this was written 700 years before Jesus, 700 years before Holy Week. And the prophet was speaking of the suffering servant. This is all prophecy of the Messiah to come. And he said this, I gave, now no one just beat Jesus. Jesus had to give himself to be beaten. I gave my back to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Now when Isaiah wrote this, the chief form of capital punishment amongst the Jews was stoning. And Moses did not allow a beating before a stoning. But God knew that when the Messiah would come, Rome would be dominating the world and in power in Jerusalem. So when they spoke of Jesus' death, the, the prophet said that he'd be beaten before he would be killed. Zechariah 12 and 10, this is 500 years before Jesus. This is not, you know, this was not written as Jesus walked. Zechariah prophesied this, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. That statement is rich, but let's move on. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. The term here speaks of a person being pierced by a sword or a spear. It was predicted that not only would the Messiah be, be beaten, but that he would also be stabbed. John 19 and verse 33, again, 500 years before Messiah came, Jesus could not have manipulated these facts. He was bound. He couldn't make people do the things that were done. He was nailed to the cross. He couldn't make them stab him. They couldn't make it so they didn't break his leg. And we go on and on about the many things that were way beyond Jesus. He couldn't have chose the tomb that he was placed in. He was dead. He couldn't even have picked the place he was born. He was a baby. But, but Micah prophesied in chapter 5 that he'd be born literally in Bethlehem. I mean, so many details that he had no power over were prophesied before he arrived. John 19 and 33, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his leg, but the psalmist said not a bone would be broken. And David saw by the Holy Spirit that this would be true, and they did not break his leg because he died uh, in enough time for them to take him down for the cross. Verse 34, but one of the soldiers, what did they do? Pierced his side with a spear. It happened just as it was foretold 500 years prior by the prophet. We could go on and on and on, 
But what I want to do is just take a moment on, on, on this Sunday as we begin to enter Passion Week to look at really the greatest prophetic chapter in all of the Scripture. We've covered the earlier part of Isaiah 53, but we're going to pick up now in verse 7. Again, uh, 700 years before Jesus Christ was born, it says this, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened up his mouth. And what the prophet was saying was that when the Messiah would, 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 would face death, he, would, he wouldn't resist. There'd be no argument or debate, but he would willingly. Now, how many of you could, 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 could face, you know, death without, you know, standing before a judge and hiring an attorney or a lawyer? Jesus was the most magnificent mind that ever existed. He could talk circles around the Sanhedrin, Pilate, and, 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 and inherit the same. But he opened up not his mouth, lest he convinced them not to kill him. In fact, Herod got angry at him, said, you say nothing? You're standing before me, you don't defend yourself? But Jesus knew if he opened his mouth, he would not die. But Jesus was willingly... Jesus did not fight. In fact, when Jesus, when, when Peter tried to use the sword to protect the master, Jesus went and healed his ear. Malachus is uh, a servant there. He was willingly led as a sacrificial lamb to the slaughter. John 1 and 29, let's listen to a contemporary here. The next day, John, this is his cousin, John the Baptist, his half-cousin, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, what? The lamb of God. But Isaiah already said he was like a sheep before his shearers dumb. He said, behold the Lamb of God, the, the Holy Spirit will not and cannot contradict himself. What he said in one generation, he will, will line up with what he says in the next. The reason why I teach from this Bible is because God doesn't change. What he said through the apostles, he's saying to us today. People may change, but God's word does not change. The Holy Spirit does not change. This is why I revere this book we call the Holy Bible. Then it goes on, he says, who takes away the sin of the world. This was prophetic, what John spoke. But back to Isaiah 53 and 8, the Messiah would be taken from prison and from judgment. Isaiah understood that the Messiah would be captured, but it goes on to also say he'd participate in legal proceedings, that he would go to prison and there'd be a place of judgment. Again, there's legal proceedings. All of the things that happened in the last days and this final week of Jesus were written hundreds, in some cases thousands of years before they transpired. Mark 15 and verse 1. Again, it's prophesied that there'd be legal proceedings here. Now, he could have just been stabbed. He could have just been cut. There are a million different ways that a man can die. But God was very specific about what would happen to his Messiah. Verse 15 and 1. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, meaning Jesus uh, stood before a hearing of the Sanhedrin. And then they bound Jesus. They restrained him. He became a captive as the Isaiah prophesied. They led him away and delivered him to who? Pilate. 
So after Jesus stood before the high priest, he was taken to the fortress of Antonia uh, to stand before Pilate. That was where Pilate was housed. Then he was shuffled back and forth from Herod's palace, uh, palace uh, from, the, from the fortress uh, because, you know, uh, politically, Jesus at this point was too hot to handle. So he, he was standing before all of these men. Uh, numerous hearings took place just as Isaiah prophesied. Are you still with me? Yeah. Isaiah 53 and 8. Isaiah continues, he didn't want us to miss the Messiah when he came, so he's very specific, and he was saying, listen, he, he might as well have said, you know, he's going to wear a, a, a blue shirt uh, and have on Nike sneakers, and, and he was going to drive this type of car. The details are quite remarkable considering how far these prophets were removed from the literal life of Jesus. Verse 53 and verse 8, and who will declare his generation? Meaning the Messiah would be a man without children. Generation means generate, and generation speaks of what comes out of generations are our children and descendants. So forget about what the movies say about Jesus dating Mary Magdalene and all that strange stuff. The Messiah would be a man without children. There were very few men without Jewish men that were Jesus' age without children. So, I mean, as we go on, it narrows and narrows. I mean, it was, it was an honorable thing for a man to marry. You did not find the rabbis, the Sadducees and Pharisees, single men. But it says of the Messiah that he would have no children. Then it goes on, it says, for he was cut off from the land of the living. As we go on, the description again gets narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower. He says the Messiah would not just die like a normal man, but he would be cut off or he had to be killed. I mean, this is amazing. I mean, other Old Testament statements state that he'd be of the tribe of Judah. There were 12 tribes in Israel, so that narrowed it down to, to a single tribe. Then it goes on and said he'd be born in Bethlehem. Some people say there were only about 500 people that lived in the town of Bethlehem. Then it goes on and says he'd be born of a virgin or a young girl. I mean, I mean it gets thinner and thinner and thinner. And then Malachi says he would come while the temple was standing because the Bible said he would appear at the temple. The temple was destroyed at 70 A.D. And and there hasn't been a temple for 70 years since. So if the Messiah came, he had to come before 70 AD. I mean, it gets narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower. And the odds of one man fulfilling all of these prophecies, many of which we cannot cover today, becomes absolutely astronomical in its proportions. John 11 and verse, no, let me finish Isaiah 53 and 8. He was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgressions of my people, he was stricken, meaning the Messiah would not be punished because of his own sin, but for the sins of others and many. John 11 and 50. This prophecy is very, very challenging because even men who opposed Jesus ended prophesying about his identity and destiny. This man stood in the office of the high priest, and because of it, the Spirit of God moved on his mouth. And you know, no matter who's in office, I pray for the man in office, and I believe God can speak to our president, whether it was Bush, whether it was Obama, or whoever comes next. Because of the office, and there's a praying people, I believe God can use the office. The devil tries to use it too, but God can use the office for the good of the nation. Amen? Yeah. John 11 and 50. And one of them, Caiaphas, being the high priest that year, again, he was in office, he was the leader, the religious leader of the nation, 
said to them, you know nothing at all. He's rebuking them. Nor do you consider that it is a better or expedient for us that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. And then the Bible explains he didn't realize what he said. Now this he did not say on his own authority. He didn't just say this because he, he, he got a bright idea. But being the high priest, the Holy Spirit prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And the facts are, while Jesus was walking the planet Earth, even the rocks would cry out. I mean, I mean, it was so apparent that Christ was the fulfillment of biblical prophecy that the Israelites had studied, you know, uh, every, every day of their lives, that it became obvious to all. Isaiah 53 and verse 9. Scripture says, And they made his grave. Again, a dying man cannot control the things that happened after his death. And actually, Jesus was at odds with his family. The Bible says that he appeared to James, his brother, and because of that appearance, James became a follower of Jesus, but his family didn't always get it. So his family did not make these arrangements. Also, he was a criminal. And to a family that sometimes you didn't want to take care of the criminal because people would frown on you and you were, the criminal was considered a shame to the family. So you just, you know, sometimes let the vultures take him. But Scripture says, and they made his grave with the what? Wicked. What it says here is that the Messiah would be associated with criminals in his death. Isaiah sees by the Holy Spirit things that were clearer than, than even people standing there could see. It would have been impossible for the master to have manipulated many of these facts. Mark 15 and verse 27 said, it, again, it said he made his grave with the wicked, but verse 27 says, with him they also, also crucified two robbers. He was killed with the wicked, one on his right, the other on the left. Isaiah could not have been clearer. Isaiah 53 and 9. They made his grave with the wicked, but watch this but also with the rich at his death. How did a carpenter end up being buried with a rich person? It's not something you would ever, ever expect. But the prophet saw this 700 years before it occurred. Let's listen to Matthew 27 and verse 57. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from, a what? Rich man. It said the Messiah would be buried with the rich, or with the rich. And suddenly we see this rich man Show up at the tomb, the accuracy of the prophetic account. A man from Arimathea, a man that they could go check on, a man that while this was written they could still talk to, a man actually that was part of the Sanhedrin, so he had everything to lose if this thing came out and it wasn't true. So, so he was alive, and his name was Joseph. This was not just some myth. They, they'd said his name, where he was from, gave details, and he was a celebrated individual. And he said, this man came, and his name was Joseph, uh, who, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate, and what did he do? Asked for the body of Jesus, just like Isaiah said. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, what did he do? He wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb. Where did dead people bury themselves? In, dead, in rich people's, I'm sorry, rich people buried themselves in rich people's cemeteries. And it was an expensive cemetery. Poor people had graves, if they had graves really uh, that, that were quality at all, where you kind of just stuck the rock in and it was kind of more like a cork. 
But this rock you rolled the stone in. So that was something, it lets you know a wealthy individual uh, owned that grave. It was kind of like a casket, you know, uh, with gold and stuff and brass. I mean, that was a big old thing to have a rolling stone on the outside of your, your, your casket. And he laid his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb. And, it what? and he did what? He departed. We can go on and on looking at, at fulfilled prophecy today, but I, I want you to see that it's God's nature to first predict a thing, then fulfill it. If God is being himself, he says it before he does it. That's God's modus operandi. That's the way he operates. That's why God's word is so important because before he does a thing, he says a thing. So when you know that about God, you become, I mean, hearing God becomes urgent. Getting in the word of God becomes priority because you know that before he does it, he says it. So you become attentive to his voice. You become attentive to to what he's saying because you understand the ways of God. You have been listening to the Live Big Podcast with Dr. Derek Greer. For more information, visit DerekGreer.com or follow Dr. Greer on social media.